0: of all honor and glory and praise and worship. And Lord, what a joy it is this morning to sing together with the saints and to worship you, Father. You are worthy. And Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to sing together and to rejoice in these facts, Lord. Um, Father, I pray this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear from your word, Lord, that we would build our lives on these truths. Lord, help us to build our lives not on the um, many of even good things, Lord, that we can be tempted to center our lives around. But Lord, may we center our lives around you. Lord, may you be the center of our worship and the center of all that we do. Lord, may our lives really be built around you and built on the firm truth of your word. Um, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for keeping us safe on our way out here this morning. We pray for safety for those traveling. We pray, Lord, that you might provide comfort to those among us who need it, that you might allow us um, to continue to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, may you be honored the rest of this morning as we continue to worship you. Father, we pray this in the name of our mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, church. Today's reading is Romans 7 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, shall she should be called an adulteress? But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our bodies, and member members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter.
2: Thank you, Mark. Morning, Reliance. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I just would like before I tiptoe into the text this morning, acknowledge uh, those who came out yesterday. I, Adam, and I came here. Dave was here, and I was thinking, okay, well, we got a lot of work ahead of us today, and. the men that showed up and the women that showed up to help tear those walls down, uh, you bring me great encouragement uh, to risk it all, so to speak, to, to demolish walls. Uh, and then with that reflection, Adam said, this is the last time you'll get a stand on this stage, you know, and uh, yeah, there's moments in church history, in the life of a church that uh, are worth remembering, what God has done through a people and for a people, and Uh, For those of you at home who are watching or are very familiar, uh, we can say that God has been good to us as a people, even in the midst of this season. And I ask that you would pray with me that, um, that God wouldn't stop and that we recognize that God is not only doing something in the city, but he is moving people here quickly. And as a result of that, there's going to be the need of more churches. And our decision to make this transition to a bigger suite for a sanctuary is to continue allowing ourselves to know one another and to grow so that we might send. Um, this, this next year, we recognize that we'll be even sending one of our own internationally, Brandon and Lisa. And uh, I would pray that as a people, this would become something very familiar for us. To love people well, I've kicked them off to send them to minister to the people that would live in this community, and I know for many of you who are watching at home that is your desire as well. And so, with that, we come before a, a, a difficult text or challenging text to consider. And so, if you might be in the other room or you might be here with me, I ask that you would uh, turn your mind and your thoughts towards these things and. Let's contemplate it before we go to the Lord, and let's go in prayer. Lord, it is a joy to be able to watch and see what you have done through us as a people. No doubt, just two years ago, when we were considering buying the land and the facility around here, we did not anticipate what last year would bring. And Lord, we recognize that uh, uh, through that last year, we have learned a lot about ourselves, Uh, We have learned a lot about our culture as a church, and Lord, as we consider things forward, Lord, I pray that we would respond well to all those things that we've learned about ourselves. Lord, we deeply desire to be a people that respond to your word. That we hear it in such a way that uh, it's not just intellect, but it's rather that we're so inspired by your truth that we want to apply it to our lives. Not just as fathers, but Live it in such a way that it impacts our workplaces. Become the student, whether he be in elementary or middle school or high school, college. That when he understands the truth of the gospel, even if he is or she is a kindergartner, she can live those truths out in her classroom. But more than that as well, Lord, as we live within your truth, we want to be a people that uh, desperately are devoted to one another. In the midst of this last year, Lord, these things have been proved challenging. But Lord, I pray that uh, even in the midst of the seasons that we see ahead of us, Lord, that you would grow us in that regard. To have an unwavering devotion to one another, to invest ourselves into these people, and to become the community in which loves and cherishes one another well. And so that we might be a people that can impact the community for Christ through expressing our love for Christ and whatever platform you allow us to to serve in, and Lord, with the text before us, Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, I pray that you would accomplish all of those things that we have asked. That you would challenge us and convict us, and call us to your obedience through it, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. The relationship you once had, the relationship you once had, has now changed in light of your union with Christ. The relationship you once had has now changed in light of your union with Christ. There are some things that happen in our life so wonderful, so grand, that once you've gone through the door, there's not an opportunity to go back through it. And if you did or attempted to, you would be perceived foolish. When I met Beth, it just took one car ride, right? Right? Took her many other car rides to come to realize that I could be her husband. But I took one car ride with her and I knew she would be my wife. And so I waited patiently and I pursued her and eventually won her over. Persistence wins, right? Wore her down. We did the thing that often many young couples do. We dated for four months, got engaged, and then decided to be engaged for 11 months. I would not counsel anyone to do that. Why? Because you anticipate what's going to come. And in light of anticipating what is to come, you know the law, the standards of which God has set before you to honor, to cherish, to wait. And it's funny, even when I got up and stood holding my wife's hands and we gave each other our vows, uh, I stumbled through all of it because I was so excited. I had the pastor just... Two little, two little segment words. I Jacob because I just fumbled it. But there's one thing that after that occurrence, and we walked back out of the aisle, down the aisle, out of the church, and all the support and the appreciation. We went to this to the, this, not the, the what not what they call the thing afterwards, it's the reception. We went to the, still doing it. Went to the reception afterwards. Had a great time. I didn't get mints mints because everybody ate my mints. But only a year later, somebody gave me some mints. They made some, so they thoughtful. But one thing I did not do is after the whole thing, the whole evening was done, I did not take my bride, drive her back down to Kennewick, where Dave had raised her and dropped her off. Why? I took her home. Something so profound, so phenomenal, such an experience that we all recognize Often many of us wait for anticipation and know that once we go through that door, everything changes. How foolish it is for a grown man who has waited desperately for his bride that after the evening has concluded to take her and drop her off at her family's house. And I would say that there is a challenge even more significant. That when we have entered into a union with Christ, a relationship with Him, There is such a strategic event that occurs that's so even more profound than marriage that there there is this perception for many who struggle to go back to what they once were. The Jewish community was not the only one that struggled with it, but here Paul makes a point to address their issue. You're like the husband who's driven his bride back home. You're not enjoying the freedom which now you have been granted in Christ. And I'd ask you while we go through this text, while I know he speaks to a Jewish audience, we can all relate to it. We have been the fool who has gone back to how we once lived. The gospel, the power of the gospel changes the relationships that we once had and has now forever changed them in light of our union with Christ. And I have watched many Christians struggle with how they relate to the world in front of them. The Jewish community struggled with it. I struggle with it. And Paul makes wants to make one last effort to show that because of your union with Christ, everything has changed of how you relate to the world. He's specific. He is very specific. Look what he does in Romans 7, chapter 1. Do you not know, brethren... He's trying to uh, guide his audience. And why I say he's specific is he makes a clarification which is important to notice. Romans 7.1, if you read it in more detail. Do you not know, brethren? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Which we recognize as the reader, as this would have been presented to the church in Rome, when Paul makes this clarification He is speaking to people who are both Gentile and Jew. And it's almost as if he sticks the finger out at the Jew and says, this is for you to consider. Gentiles, I imagine, go, we better listen up. This is for you. Maybe. But he makes clarification to make a point. Because it is the brethren, the Jew, who was under the law. And as a result of being unified with Christ, they were like the bride or the husband taking his bride back to that which they once were. Becoming foolish. Paul has made clarifications all along the way of this issue. If you return back to Romans chapter 3 verse 19. You'll see now we know that whatever the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law. In law? In It speaks to whom? Those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. I feel it is necessary to clarify this in my introduction primarily because it is while it is pointed, he is trying to help a Gentile's brother in Christ, a Jew, realize that their relationship that they once had with the law has now been changed as a result of their union with Christ. And so while Paul is being specific, I believe it is necessary, I think it's essential to clarify it here. If you turn with me one more time in chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, Paul, you'll see, does this again. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated for, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul is trying to do something here, which I think is important to step back for a moment. Culturally, The issues that you saw within the church had to deal with this new relationship that Jews and Gentiles had with one another. And Gentiles were often asked to consider doing things that did not fit within the gospel's presentation. And Jews were causing problems within the church. And Paul needs to address this. You'll see if you remember familiar Peter called by God to go to Cornelius' house. He goes to Cornelius' house and he preaches the gospel to them and they are all overcome by its power and they're transformed and the Holy Spirit comes over them. An exciting moment. Gentiles can be saved by faith and faith alone. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. Do you remember what happened? Peter goes back in Acts chapter 11, verses 2-3. through And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised Jew took issue with him. This is a problem, Peter. What's the problem? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now that caused church problems, wouldn't it? And they had little concern for what had happened at Cornelius' house, and they had treated their relationship with the law as unchanged in light of their union with Christ. You remember in Acts chapter 15, it became so troubling And that in Acts chapter 15, it causes the first church council to take place. Why? Acts 15.1 Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Religious minded Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, those words are powerful. I remember contemplating even my own salvation as i was ministering at a fairground event and an elder man elderly man argued with me and challenged me that if i did not follow his practice or perception of the law that i would be unsaved that troubled me for a weekend And then I had to go back home and remind myself, how is a man saved? What must a man do in order to be saved? The words that we can say, if you do that, you're not saved. Or if you don't do this, you cannot be saved are powerful. And not only does the Jew do it, the Gentile does it. And as we consider this text, I think it is... Fundamentally important that we understand what is at the center of our faith. Because what has happened for the Jew, and I will conclude this with for the Gentiles, well, is that in light of our union with Christ, it is so tempting to pull something else into the center of it. To say that this is the most essential thing. And the Jew was constantly trying to pull back in the law. They were like the new husband dropping off their bride at their father's house. And so with clarification, with one last time, we started this section like several weeks ago. Paul has tried to provide five illustrations. As I was contemplating this, I was thinking, man, Paul, you didn't really help the preacher because the preacher is going to have to do this, say this five times to prove the point. And he is trying to get this across the reader's attention. Something has changed. And something has been now so significant that it has changed the relationship that you have had with sin, death, and now the law. The relationship we once had with sin has changed. The, The relationship that we had with death has changed. And the result of it, as he turns our attention to here today, the relationship with the law has changed. So in this, he clarifies this with these words. Our first point. The law has no jurisdiction over you. It's simplistic, I think, in its, its declaration. But remind yourselves, who is he saying it to? And what does he mean when he says the law has no jurisdiction over you? Well, what does he mean is, is that jurisdiction is the term that which carries the idea of having no authority. It has no ownership. It has no control. It has no Rule over you. It does not reign over you, Jew. And the law now has no jurisdiction over you, that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he lives. Just so I clarify this. For the reader, when we read it in English, this might be a rare occurrence in which we think that this is the first time that Paul has used the word jurisdiction. If you would read it elsewhere, I, I, I kind of tend to frustrate with translators at times, but he uses this terminology all the way through Romans chapter 6. It's been familiar for you to understand in that the first time he uses the word jurisdiction is in Romans 6, 8 through 9. So I bring your attention to that. In Romans 6, 8 through 9, he makes this proclamation that in light of Christ and your reunion with him, the relationship that you once had to death has forever been changed. Look at this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. And here is when you'll see the word jurisdiction show up. Death no longer is master over him. Death has no jurisdiction over him anymore as a result of your union with Christ. The second occurrence, which you see this term again, is in Romans 6, 14. As a result of our union with Christ, for sin shall not be master over you. Sin will no longer have jurisdiction over you. As a, I hope you're getting what I'm saying. I'm trying to be repetitive for a purpose. In light of our union with Christ, the relationship that we had with death and sin has been dissolved. It does not have a reigning authority over us any longer. And this is important to build as he gets now to Romans 7.1. That the law has only jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Or another way you could translate it. The law is only a master. Over a person as long as he lives. You remember when I was uh, growing up, I worked all summer one year. I got a, about the age of 12, my parents said, We're not going to give you any longer an allowance. Now that might sound cruel, but I was a farm kid. We were homeschooled, we lived around a lot of farms. And so we made good money. And so we would bucke, and the minimum wage then was like, what, $3? What? And the result, we could go bucket for $25 an hour. That's, that's no-brainer. And so we would come home with all this cash, and my parents said, no more allowance. You're going to have to pay for your clothes. And what? Well, I ended up one summer saving up all my money to buy a radio, you know, the one that Put it on your shoulder. You walk down the street. But I saved up for a radio. and as, Now you just put them in your head, your ears, right? Um, and I saved up all summer for that. I bought the biggest one you could get. And I put it in my room and I turned the dial up after a couple of weeks of rep, repetitious um, reminders that there are other people that live within the house and you can't play your radio at whatever volume you want. Remember one time, My mom comes up, and she says, turn it down. And I said, I said, it's my radio. (laughs) I get to do what I want with it. That didn't work very well. Um, (laughs) Because I heard my mom's feet go down to dad. Dad. And my and t- display I told him to this, and he says, he can do whatever he wants with his radio." And my dad came up to the room and reminded me that while I lived under his jurisdiction, that I have only the freedom to which to play my radio at his frequency. And as a result of that, he said, "You have no radio. When we live uh, when we live. Outside of Christ, there is a relationship that we have to sin and death. But Paul has concluded in Romans 6, as a result of our union with him, sin and death, that relationship has changed. And for the Jewish audience, it was difficult for them to see how the law now has changed for them as well. And in light of this jurisdiction, he reminds them, by means of illustration, you're dead. And your relationship, yes, even to the law, has now changed. You're not under that jurisdiction anymore. And by simplistic illustration, he uses an understandable illustration. And I ask you to read it with me. So he says, verse 2, for the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while living, while he is living. I don't think that Beth would say that, that she's, this is a bad thing, right? This is a good thing. And I think that the law is good, right? But as it unites a relationship together. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. From that jurisdiction that we made before everyone on that Dade some 20 years ago almost. It's 18. But but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. However, verse 3, so then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Why? Because she is acting outside of the jurisdiction of that law that we committed to. And as a result of that, she has been found unfaithful. Now this applies not just to women, this also applies to men as well. By means of illustration, he points to the wife, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So as a result of this, we see the same illustration that he has later on over and over again. This is like the fifth illustration that he's presented before the reader. As a result of your union with Christ, all your relationships have changed with sin, death, and now the law. And Jews, you have died to the law. You can see this argument in verses 4 and 5. Therefore, my brethren, I think, like for me, if you're familiar with Galatians, there's a Jewish audience in Galatia that was so hostile towards Gentiles not becoming Mosianic Jewish Christians. They, were, they wanted the Gentile Christians to perform all of the law. And he gets very angry with those in Galatia. But we've got to be careful because I do think in Romans, it's a guiding voice. He hasn't used the term brethren since chapter 1. He's trying to guide the audience. Brethren, you've died to the law. He's not rebuking them here. I do think he has a tone of correction. Therefore, my brethren, he uses it twice here, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit. Do you you see it? The power of the gospel is this. And then we remember what the law once did. If we remember, verse 5, what the law did, for while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit to death. If we remember, as we go back, it was the law in its place actually caused us to recognize our sin and sin all the more. And he's going to argue that relationship with the law has now been forever changed. Why? Why? Well, we've been justified. We have great peace with God. We have right standing with God. We have access through our Savior, Jesus Christ. The law and the relationship that we once had with it now has forever been changed. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that which we have been, were bound so that we serve in a newness of the Spirit. Something greater has come. Can't wait till chapter 8, so he fleshes more of that language out. What has come? The law is no longer guiding you, but this new relationship, this access you have before with God is a result of now having a guiding influence which is so more superior than the law, the Spirit of God. Okay? That's his argument. The law no longer has jurisdiction over you anymore. And that is our first point. But before I go to our second point, I just want to show you how dominant this this issue was. And just reflect once again, stepping back. This was hard for a Jewish audience to grapple with. It was like to be Jewish, the law separated them socially. Socially. The law separated them ethnically. The law separated them religiously and nationally. And now Paul has said, you don't have it anymore. And there had to be a sense of who am I now? What am I in light of this? And Paul, while he brings this new benefit, there was something for the Jew to realize and grapple with what has changed for me. And so in Acts 15 I would like you to just turn our attention and we'll go to our second point. But you can see this being discussed with great, uh, what's the right, uh, strife. The how to relate to the Jewish law and how to call Gentiles and how to, re- how to relate the law to Gentile communities. I mean, think about it, men. You grew up Gentile. You have a Jew that comes into your fellowship, and he teaches this in Acts chapter 15. One, some man came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that would probably hinder a lot of people, men, from responding to the gospel. I think today it would. And that you would have to physically change something in order to inherit this new relationship. But in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. This created a lot of strife within the church. You can't do that. You cannot suggest these things. And it caused this moment where the Jewish Community and the church had to gather together to have a conversation. How does a man become saved? What must a man do in order to receive the hope of the gospel? Look at verse 4 with me. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. Everyone's there. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, and these, are, these are individuals who have responded to the gospel, who have a religious leadership position. And look how they respond. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Talk about opposition. Verse 16. The apostle and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after they debated, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, love this term. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the newness of the letter. The Spirit, which we have seen in Romans 6 or 7, 6. Just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. I hope you... This is everywhere within the New Testament. This language. This language of which there was us and them. Jews and Gentiles. Circumcised, uncircumcised. And the result of this, it it forces the way that actually address these issues. And I'll point to this again here in section. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing the heart by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing what Peter does here. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers or we are able to bear. Jews, why are you asking them to follow the Mosaic law when we couldn't even do it? Putting a weight upon them. But we believe this, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Romans 7, Acts 15 is this unity in which they are striving to say that the scent of our faith is not the law. The scent of our faith is Christ. And the challenge, point two, was this. We often read the letter of Romans and we just wonder, why is that even there? Romans one sixteen is like the heartbeat of the whole letter. But I want you to notice what he said in Romans one sixteen. What did he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I would have put a period there. Done. But he has to clarify. That it's all for the Jew first. And the Gentile. Because it is a prominent issue. That people do not recognize. In light of your union with Christ. That it changes your very relationships. That you once had even to a Gentile society. Jews. That God has saved the nations through Christ. Can save the nations through Christ. And the Jews, the challenge that they had is to incorporate the Gentiles as Jews, rather around Christ. So I, I found myself this last week thinking, man, this, this element, for some reason, would make sense if you're preaching it to a Jew, right? Like, I'm not a Jew. I don't struggle with following the Mosaic law. But I do know this. In the seven years that I've done ministry, it is a common practice for many to use the Mosaic law as a standard to which they call people to salvation. And the challenge, I think, it was really difficult Really hard for a Jew to understand is for so long there were only two worlds. If you can grasp this, I think it will change the way you read your Bibles. There was only two worlds views in their minds. There were those who were saved, Jew, and those who were not, Gentile. In order for a Jew early, for historically, this is true. In order for a Gentile to be saved, what must they do? become Jewish. Themselves under the Mosaic Law, but something else has come now. Christ who has fulfilled the law, transforming them, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. But historically, when you look through the text, there were Jews and there were pagans. There were Jews and there were sinners. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. You'll see the, the language that they use all over the place. There were those who were circumcised and those who were uncircumcised. Let me give you an example. Matthew 9.11, Pharisees, watching Jesus do his ministry, and Jesus has the audacity, being a Jew, to go sit in a Gentile's house. Remember what the Pharisees said? He said, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus interacting with the unsaved? Pagans. Romans 3 9. You'll see it there. Paul makes the distinction. Are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? His conclusion? By no means. We're all under sin. Even in Ephesians, you see this language everywhere. There was only two worlds. Ephesians 2 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by humans' hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. There were only two worlds. Remember when Peter initially went to Cornelius' house, repetitious to prove a point, When Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, he feels it necessary to say, in Acts 10.28, you yourselves know, being a Jew, how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me, yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy and unclean. At one point, Peter lived his life in one perspective. But in light with his union with Christ, he shows up at Cornelius' house because that which is in the center of his life now, God has called him to minister to Gentiles. And we have, being an American culture that has the integration of so many cultures, this concept is so foreign to us But if anything that Paul has been trying to labor on throughout this entire text is this. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. Hear me out. The two world philosophy that the Jew had was accurate. But it has now been changed. In that there is only those who are in Christ and those who are not. And whether they are in Christ or whether they are not, the power of the gospel can receive them whether they are Jew, Gentile, whatever. And for a Jew, that was hard to grasp because far, for far too long, for so long, they didn't realize that this was coming. The power of the gospel is this. It is able to take the nations and receive them under one person who is Christ. Therefore, well, Paul is guiding, he's trying to instruct, brethren, brethren, don't use the law as something to control the Gentile with. And I'll ask you this to consider why, why was it? What was in the mind of the Jew that was finding this so tempting? If you know the culture, a Gentile is having a dinner, a 16-year-old is having a birthday party and he invites everybody over from the church. The Jews' presence, even at a birthday party, was offensive to his culture. And he is now realizing the relationship that I once had to my Jewish community has changed. And it was so tempting to take the Gentile community and say, just become Jew. That it helped me out with my Jewish family. And they were calling people to things that stood in contrast to the gospel rather than living in it. And I do not think that the Jew is the one that struggles with this. Gentiles struggle with this as well. I mentioned that Paul mentions the word jurisdiction three times. There's a fourth. And if you understand it, I've done my work well. The jurisdiction that once sat under death, under sin, and under the law has now changed. And so we ask the question, who has it? The fourth time that Paul uses it is in a couple of chapters later in Romans chapter 14, verse 7 through 9. I just want you to read it with me and we'll go to our conclusion. For not one of us lives for himself. Wow! Wow! even my relationship with myself has changed in light of my union with Christ. And not one dies for himself, for if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. What's at the center of the gospel but Christ? Not the law, not death, not sin, Christ. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this sin... Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord or have, this is the word, jurisdiction. That he might have jurisdiction or reign both of the dead and of the living. Mm -hmm. Jurisdiction has been transferred from sin, death, law to Christ. Which when we read Matthew 28, this makes sense. All authority has been given to me. And everything is centered around now in the world as how the world relates to me. Either you're in Christ or you're not. And the law that which used to separate the world into two groups has now been replaced with Christ. Understand? It's a lot to gain from six verses. He's been making this argument for the whole last chapter and a half. So what is our what is our convictional response in light of this? I said that sometimes texts like this are hard because we're not culturally committed in our previous relationship outside of Christ to the law. The Gentiles, I would argue as well, recognize in light of their union with Christ, there is a challenge that we face. The relationship that we once had with, for a Gentile is specific um, to what we once used to cherish um, this is why I think the Gospels are so broad in the way that which they challenge the reader how to respond to Christ. Like, your possessions. As in light of your relationship with Christ, your relationship to your, patient, your possessions has now changed in light of your union with Christ. If you learn to read. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 it makes sense then. So then no one can be a disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. And how easy it is. I've heard it even the seven years. I will not go to church because they want my money. Well, what's happening is that there is jurisdiction they have given to money and not to Christ. And the only thing that can happen is when a church says we want to uh, respond and worship through our resources is, is that the church just wants my money. And in light of that, there's this result that is being uh, held over them as a result for their master. But even though it's not our possession, look at it yourself. Matthew 16, 24, probably one of the most challenging texts. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The relationship that I have with myself has changed in light of my union with Christ. And that now no longer do I live for myself, I live for Christ because He's at the center of it. But it's not just myself, not my possessions. If I were to be quite... Honest, the most difficult thing in my life probably has been my family. And that Jesus has said in light of my, your union with me, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And that so many people put at the center of their life their family. Children. And Jesus says, in light of your union with me, those relationships have changed. It was probably back in 2009, there was a conflict that I had with loved ones. And in that moment, in that season, I realized how deeply I lived to please those around me. And it was at that point that I realized that I needed to grow up go to seminary and get more life experience and to grow in making Christ the center of my life. And it's interesting that you think that at times that you don't have those temptations going into the center of your faith, but when they pop up, they're there. Probably should have asked Brandon and Lisa's permission, but I never do anyways. But I remember just a year ago, a little over a year ago, when Brandon and Lisa started talking about going on the mission field initially. Me? I was like, no. Don't do that. Send Adam. No. <laughs> no, I don't do that either. But in that moment, I had to wrestle with is it okay letting people go? Is it a good thing to let people go? Yes. And the hard thing for my family is that we deeply love them. But they're not at the center of our, of our faith. Right? And that we hold people open-handed and let, people, let God take people where they go. And I remember when they were seeking for counsel and I was sitting around with the other elders and they were saying, do you think God could let us do this? And in my heart I said, no. No. No, absolutely. And I know it's been for them a struggle as well to let go of relationships. Is it worth everything to give up all possessions, all relationships, all fellowship with family to pursue Christ? Yes. And as your pastor, they're not the last missionaries we're sending from this church. We're going to send your children. We're going to send some of you because it's worth it for our kids to not realize that you're the most important thing in the world. And they might come to realize it is worth losing all things for Christ. Whether it be money, whether it be family, whether it be protection and safety. Money, Matthew six twenty four. no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And I was in seminary and I was considering chaplaincy for the military. And I will be honest, that was exciting. But the one thing that was really, really attractive about it was the money. The one thing that I could not get around was the reality that it would cause me to Jeopardize some of my convictions. I could not pray in Christ's name. I'd have to lead people to other religious traditions that would salt, would not produce life, but death. And would I be willing to do that? Many chaplains walk that line and do well. I just knew that God had not set it aside for me. And what was attractive to me was money. Would you be willing to do a church plant? <laughs> it was the opposite tree of the chaplaincy in the military. We all struggle with this. It's not just the Jew that doesn't realize that their relationship that they once had, whether it be family, money, whatever resources, has now changed in light of your union with Christ. This last year, Christians ought to be reminded in First Peter, your relationship with your government has changed. In 1 Peter 2, he writes to the church, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. The context here. And that you are now guests of America. Guests of Rome. Guests of wherever God has placed you. But while you're there, keep your behavior excellent among You see that? The Gentiles. Peter even does it. Around the pagans. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I'll do one more. Not only does it change our relationship to our government, but it does change our relationship to the entire world. Paul, had probably the best training that you could probably ask for, lost everything. Purposely to gain those to Christ so they might know Him. Galatians 6.14 But it may never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and to the world. Even the way that we relate to the world has changed in light of our union with Christ. When Paul says in Romans 7, 6, now you have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit. The privilege that the Jews had, without guilt, to fellowship now with Gentiles was a wonderful thing. As it relates to your union with Christ, The world just got much bigger for you, and the kingdom work which God is doing is not just for you; it's for the whole world. Receive them with joy and walk with them in the Spirit. And I can't wait when we get to Romans eight to learn what that looks like. I don't know where you're at, but in every season and every time, there has been this pull which we all find. We're not just the Jew is not the only one that struggles with this, but we ought to be reminded regularly the relationship that we had once with. Blank has changed in light of our union with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know where we're at. We recognize that maybe last year we had treasured safety or comfort. But in this last year, we've recognized that, Lord, every season that you allowed us to walk through is a season to be tested and refined. And, Lord, I pray that as we go through these seasons of life, that as you refine us by the Spirit, that Christ would always be found at the center. Lord, let us be a people that are willing to let go of family, resources, even ourselves, to enjoy learning to gain all things in Christ. And as we conclude with that in worship, Lord, I pray that you would be diligent to reveal these things to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.